Good morning. Would you please stand with me this morning? In an Eastern context, you do two things when you approach the text. One, you stand in order to distinguish your voice from the voice of the Lord. And number two, you committed yourself in the form of a prayer called Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy 6. It's a prayer prayed with passion to say, God, before we come to your holy word, before we hear from the very words of God, Lord, we again recommit ourselves to you and what you're all about. So again, just like if the Bills win the Super Bowl, it was said with passion. So say it after me. Hero Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. These are the very words of God. Acts 1 we are in today. Acts 1, 1 through 11. Luke is speaking. He says this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Hang on to that. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and the cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? In the same, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the very word of God. You may be seated. In 1994, there was a movie that came out that won the Academy Award called Forrest Gump. Maybe some of you have seen it. The story depicts the life of this Forrest Gump, a slow-witted but kind-hearted man from Greenville, Alabama, who witnessed and influenced some of the defining events of the 20th century. And one of my favorite scenes is when Forrest decides to go on a journey. And so he gets up and he begins to run. Now, in his words, he said this, In that day, for no particular reason, I decided to go for a little run. So I ran to the end of the road, and when I got there, I thought, maybe I'd run to the end of town. And when I got there, I thought, maybe I'd just run across Greenbow County. And I figured, since I'd ran this far, maybe I'd just run across the great state of Alabama. And that's what I did. I ran clear across Alabama, and for no particular reason, I just kept on going. I ran clear to the ocean. And when I got there, I figured, since I'd gone this far, might as well turn around and keep on going. And when I got to another ocean, I figured since I'd gone this far, I might as well turn back and keep right on going. Now, I apologize already for that accent if some of you are offended by that. And that's what he does. He just keeps on going. At one point, we learn in the middle of his journey that he had run across the United States four times already. And people began to attach meaning to his run. As he did it for all of this time, people began to assume that he must be doing this for some better, bigger purpose. And so they ask him, are you running for world peace, the homeless, women's rights, the environment, animals? One, others begin to run with him. He, does, he actually develops disciples. As Forrest says, what I was doing seemed to make sense to people. At one point, a man runs up to him, his first disciple And he says this, it was like an alarm went off in my head. I said, here's a guy that's got his act together. Here's a guy that's got it all figured out. Here's a guy that has all the answers. I'd follow you anywhere, Mr. Gump. And so he does, along with hundreds of other people. And in the final scene, Forrest and his followers are in the deserts of Arizona. 
He has run for three years, four months, three, 14 days, and 16 hours when he finally stops and turns to face his disciples. A dramatic pause is interrupted only by someone from the crowd yelling, quiet, quiet, I think he's going to say something. And the camera zooms in on his face, and finally he declares, I'm pretty tired. I I think I'll go home now. And he proceeds to pass through the crowd, and is gone. Nothing to say, no other context, just gone. And I love the last line of the scene is one guy from the crowd who yells out, what, is he, what are we supposed to do now? Right? He's like, now what are we supposed to do? And I can feel that. Like, they have been following this guy for years, three years, and whatever, four, three months, 14 days, 16 hours. And he just is gone. And the crowd is left wondering, what are we supposed to do now? Now, would you believe that that story makes me think of this story? You see, Jesus went on a journey. People began to attach meaning to his work. He was doing something that seemed to make sense to people. And soon he developed disciples. And it was like an alarm clock went off in their head. They said, here's a guy that's got his act together. Here's a guy that's got it all figured out. Here's a guy that has all the answers. I'd follow you anywhere, Jesus. And they ran for three years, three months, 14 days, and 16 hours. Well, maybe not that exact, but it's actually pretty close, around three years, that they followed this man everywhere he went. And then we get to this final scene today. I picture Jesus turning and facing his disciples. A dramatic pause is interrupted only by Peter yelling out, Quiet, quiet! I think he's going to say something. And the camera zooms in. If it was a movie, the camera zooms in on Jesus' face. And he says, I, I, think, I think I'll go home now. And then he's gone. It's, even the text says that they have surrounded Jesus. So he literally walks through the crowd or floats, I think, through the crowd and is gone. And they're just left standing. I can just picture, I identify with the disciples. They have given their entire lives to this guy. And I can picture them just standing there, looking into the sky and asking now what are we supposed to do? Now what are we supposed to do? Because this was not the ending that they thought. We know, and we'll look at this in the passage this morning, this is not the conclusion they were all picturing. This was the final scene, and Jesus was going to do some things, and they were prepared for it, and all of a sudden he's gone. And they're left wondering, now what are we supposed to do? But unlike Forrest Gump, Jesus did not run for, any, for no particular reason. And for the 40 days he had left on earth, he wanted to make sure we knew what that reason was. He answers the question, what are we supposed to do now? So this morning, let's find out the answer. We're going to go on a journey a bit too, because there's a lot to cover. There's a lot of background to cover. Because Jesus' answer to this, he gives 40 days, and it says in our text that he tells them about the kingdom of God. And this becomes our big clue as to what Jesus had in mind for his mission moving forward. This is Jesus' answer to the question, what does it mean to follow him after he's gone? What are we supposed to do now? So follow me. There's going to be a little bit of time. This will be a bit of a track meet, but follow me as you see the logic, and you'll see how this pays off in the end. So in the book of Acts, it begins, our story begins with a reminder of everything Jesus began to do and teach until the end of the day, until, until that, that, that day. And Jesus has fulfilled everything we've been talking about. This long story short, we are seeing how Jesus has fulfilled everything. Jesus is the better Abram who's cut a covenant, not with, go- with goats and animals, but with his own blood. Jesus is the better Moses who goes up onto a mount to give a new law, a better law, It's no accidents or coincidence that Jesus goes up on a mount to preach a sermon. That is a very distinct motif the Jewish readers would have read and said he is fulfilling the role of Moses. And in fact, the very first words or some of the very first words after the Beatitudes that Jesus speaks on this famous sermon on the mount is, you have heard, or I tell you, uh, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. 
Jesus is the better Abram. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better David. A king who builds a temple not out of uh, mortar and brick, but out of his own body, and then rules over the life and death through his resurrection. Jesus has become and fulfilled everything we've been talking about in our story. Jesus is the better way. And like I said, in 40 days, post his resurrection, Jesus wants to drop his last divine nuggets of revelation. He wants to deal with this question, what are we supposed to do now? And his answer is the kingdom of God. Verse 3, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Jesus has only a limited amount of time, and he uses it to make sure the disciples knew about the kingdom. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. This is actually one of Jesus' favorite talking points. Jesus talks about the kingdom and refers to it 85 times in the Gospels, versus love, which is only mentioned 25 times. When he first comes out of the scene, the very first words, public words out of Jesus' mouth, he's been baptized, he's gone through the temptation, he's ready to come onto the scene to do his public ministry, and his very first words are, repent, for the kingdom has come near. So this shouldn't surprise us that Jesus, giving his last 40 days, his last crash course to his disciples about what his plans are, and what his plans for them is moving forward, that he's going to talk all about the kingdom. But what is the kingdom? If I were to ask you, what is the kingdom of God? What would your answer be? I find that the kingdom of God is sort of like hot dogs. Now hear me now. We know what it is. We've heard of it before. We've experienced it before. But we actually don't really know what it is. (laughs) It's delicious. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. God's gift to us. Very good. But I don't, I don't really know what it is. And that's kind of what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of God is like, we know as Christians, yes, the kingdom of God, and we'll give these like abstract kind of spiritual definitions. But what is the tangible, real, down-to-earth, here-and-now practical definition of what the kingdom is? Because Jesus actually finds this to be pretty important. And if we don't understand what the kingdom of, of heaven is, if we don't understand what he means when he says the kingdom has come near, and at 40 days says, I'm going to tell you all about the kingdom, all about the kingdom, then it's like we have a hand tied behind our back. So what is it? What I want you to do is to picture Camelot. Picture King Arthur, picture Camelot, picture kingdom. Because again, I think that we get caught up a lot of times with this abstract kind of over-spiritualized definition of the term that doesn't actually mean anything here and now. So in your minds, begin to picture a literal kingdom. Because God's intention, his rescue plan from the beginning was to establish a kingdom. And a kingdom always has four things. This is your first uh, uh, insert, uh, fill-in, if you will. Let me go over the four elements that every kingdom needs to have. And again, we're not talking abstract, we're not talking spiritual, we're talking a literal kingdom. What do you need? There's four major things you need. Number one, a kingdom has people. A group of people. That makes sense, right? If I declare, I'm the king of my kingdom and nobody follows me, I have no kingdom. I'm a kingdom of one. So a kingdom always has a people. Number two, a kingdom always has a king. So it's a group of people who would submit to a king. No king, no kingdom. Someone to rule, someone to establish, someone to establish a way of life for them. You need a king. Number three, you need a law. You need some sort of agreed-upon set of rules and standards established by the king in order to make the kingdom work. So every kingdom has a law, the law of this kingdom. And this is how we show as people who are living in a kingdom that we submit to the king by obeying his law. With me so far? Number four is you need a land. You need a place to be. You need a particular place that you can land so you know I'm in the kingdom or I'm not in the kingdom. And so every kingdom, and again, this is not 
highly spiritual stuff here. But this is the four elements you need for a kingdom, a group of people who would submit to a king by obeying a law in a particular land. And then there would be one more result of that. And the result is this, is that the kingdom would then take on the values and the persona of that king. A kingdom witness to what the king would do and teach and be. So if the king was righteous, the laws were righteous, and so the people would be righteous. If he was wicked, the laws would be wicked, and the people would be liquid. Liquid. Wicked. So in your fill-in, a kingdom witnessed to the nations who the king was. A kingdom witnessed to the nations who the king was by, by recognizing the king, obeying his laws, submitting to him in a particular place, other nations around would be able to look at that nation and to say, this is what the nation is like. This is even very similar to what we have today. What are your thoughts on North Korea? Have you ever met anyone from North Korea? But the king declares a law that influences the people that tells everybody else who he is and what he, the singular king, is about. And so God sets up the kingdom of Israel. Stay with me here. He promises the kingdom with Abraham. If you remember in Genesis 12, it says this, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. There's that land. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you, and I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And here's the result, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. There's the result. You are to be a blessing. I'm going to bless you. You're going to be a blessing to each other. You're going to show the world who I am. And because of this nation, the result is all the other nations will be able to see what it's like and be blessed in that as well. He promises that kingdom in Abraham. Then he establishes it in Moses. He says this to Moses in, in, Gen in Exodus. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All the other nations around will look and know that you are the treasured possession. Everyone else will see what it is to be like God, to be who he is, who the king is. And so he then, all of the law, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, is God establishing his law and this law would, 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 would affect the people, influence the people. It would show who God is through the law so that everyone else could know. And then finally, he preserves the kingdom with David. And it says this, My servant David will be a king over them. And they will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave my servant Jacob, the land where your ancestors lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy. Take a look again. See as we see in the passage, in the, in the scripture here. We'll have it up front here in a minute. See all of the elements at play here when we do that. There's the underlinings of this. It says, David will be king and it says, they will follow my laws. And it says, they will live in my land. And he says, they will be my people. All the elements are there. God is establishing a kingdom with the result being, then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. That's in Ezekiel. So God or promises his kingdom through Abraham. He establishes it in Moses, and then he preserves it till the end with David. Two weeks ago, then, we talked about this kingdom and sort of the, the history past it. 
And this kingdom uh, of Israel begins to limp along trying to live out these values, trying to live out God's kingdom, trying to be that kingdom for God. And so when the kings were righteous, the laws were righteous, and the people were righteous. When the kings were wicked, the laws were wicked, and the people were wicked. And eventually civil war broke out, leaving a divided kingdom. Wickedness became so prevalent in God's kingdom that he allowed it to be taken into exile. And then 70 years later, he brings a fledgling band of Israelites back to Jerusalem and to establish the kingdom again, but it's never in its same glory. And so, like we talked about a few weeks ago, for 400 years, that single page between the New Testament and the Old Testament represents 400 years of this fledgling little kingdom that's trying its best and failing at every turn and getting taken into captivity and trying to get it back and it not being as good as it was before, just this fledgling little conquered kingdom waits 400 years for its Messiah. Waits 400 years for when God promises he will restore the kingdom of Israel back to everything God had for it. And then a stonemason from Nazareth named Jesus enters the scene and declares, repent, for the kingdom has come near. Okay, let's take a breath here for a second. So again, paint that picture. We have been waiting as a people. God gave us, he said, we are going to be a special people. We're going to be a people that has a king and a land and a law, and we're going to be a people for him so that all the nations will know who it is. And we do kind of okay at first, and then we begin to scatter a little bit, and then some kings are good and some kings are bad, and then we we have civil war and we split the kingdom up, and then eventually we're both taken into captivity, and we kind of come back, but it's never really that good, and we're just waiting for God and just saying, God, when are you going to restore the kingdom? When are you going to bring literally the, the Israel back? You're going to give us our, law, our land again. You're going to kick out those Romans who are occupying us. You're going to put your, your prophet, your, your chosen one, your Messiah on the throne. And then we're going to live on this earth forever in glory. We're looking forward to that. And then this no-name stonemason comes in and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus intentionally uses this word for that audience in that context to bring up all of their past history and failures and longings. He is invoking a concept of their literal kingdom of Israel, not to restore it though, but to fulfill it. Jesus' whole ministry is revealing to the people this seismic shift. Because as the fulfilled Abraham, Moses, and David, Jesus has come to promise, establish, and preserve a fulfilled kingdom with all of the fulfilled elements involved. A fulfilled people, but now neither Greek nor Jew, slave or free, male or female, but all one. A fulfilled king, not a human king, but the king of kings. A fulfilled law, the spirit of the law, Jesus going up the mountain and saying, you've heard it said of old, but I tell you, and a fulfilled land. But now not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And he calls this thing the church. He calls this thing the church. And the result is the same. This new covenant people, his church, would take on the values and the persona of the king. And as they obeyed the righteous law of the righteous king, they would become righteous and they would witness to the nations who the king was. The church is the fulfilled kingdom of God. This is God's plan A. From the days of Abraham... Until now, he said, I'm going to build a kingdom. But we live in a new covenant with a new king, a better king, a fulfilled covenant, a fulfilled kingdom. We are the church. We are the kingdom. And so Randall Church is an expression of the kingdom, a local example of the kingdom of God. We are a group of people who submit to a king by obeying his law in a particular place. 
And by doing this, we bear witness to who King Jesus is. In Williamsville, and in Amherst, and in Clarence, and in Lancaster, and in Kenmore, and in Getzville, in Cheektowaga, in the Tonawandas, in Buffalo, and to the ends of the earth. We are a people who have submitted to a king by obeying his law in a particular place so that the nations will know who the king is. And so Jesus, for 40 days, he's got 40 days left. What does he want to talk about? He wants to talk about the kingdom. He wants to say, you guys, you're going to go from this place. This is not the end. This is just the beginning. You're going to go from this place, and you are going to establish the kingdom. You're going to go to the ends of the earth to do it. Don't stay in Jerusalem. Don't think so narrow-mindedly. Expand. This is fulfilled. Go. I've given you my law. I am the new king. I am giving you all the lands of the earth. My dominion reaches all the lands of the earth to go build churches, to be kingdom witnesses to the nations everywhere you go as you gather together as a kingdom witness. And it's a good thing that he kind of harps on this for 40 days because at the end of this 40 days, you'd think Jesus, after 40 days of talking nonstop about the kingdom and what I'm planning and what I'm doing, 40 days later, the disciples still ask him this in verse 6. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? I can imagine Jesus being like, are you serious? We're still there? We're, we're, really? We're going we're to do this again? You've been doing this, and like the first time it was cute, and I understood you didn't get it, and then like year two, I started like giving you all those laws and saying I haven't abolished the law, but I'm here to fulfill it, and like we, we, we were doing this, and like I'm alive. Do you see me here? Like we're going we're gonna to do, do this again. You, you're, you're not getting this. This is not about Israel anymore. I, I can just see him being like, my, my son, we, we just had a, we have a, a new puppy. And like all new puppies, he's a really good boy, but he just is energetic. And Mia has learned, she's got this sweetheart, she has learned how to just like talk sweet to him and pet him. And so when she's in the room, he calms way down and he'll sit in her lap and she'll like rub his belly and rub his head. And they're just like two buds. They love each other. Then there's my two-year-old son, Micah. And my two-year-old son, Micah, sees Max as his rival and his playmate. And he tackles that dog just about every chance he sees. He sees him running and he, bang! And he'll, he'll wrestle him and kind of whack at him and stick his hands in his mouth. And when he does that, Max bites him. Now, he doesn't bite down hard, but he lets him know, like, I I'm laying here, I don't want to kick to the gut. And he'll give him a little nip. And we keep telling Micah, Micah, don't stick your hands in the dog's mouth. Like, don't come crying to us that it hurts. When you go, you poke him in the eye, and then you stick his hand, your hand in his mouth. Like, what are you not getting? And it's gotten to the point now where we'll be, like, sitting or doing something, and we'll see Micah kind of, like, in the, like, the pounce position, and we'll go, that boy just gots to learn. That boy just gots to learn. And he will jump on Max, and Max will nip him to say, stop, and he'll come running, and we'll say, sorry, bud. Like, you just, how are you not getting this still? Don't stick your hands. I, I, it's, and you as parents understand this too, right? You tell a kid a thousand times to do something, and they still do it, and you're like, where are you? Then you understand what Jesus probably felt like. He's talking about the kingdom of God, and not like three verses later, like, oh yeah, but what about the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus is like, it's not, you don't need to know. It's not... Whatever, however Israel is going to play into this, you don't need to know about that. We're just, let it go. We're not doing this. I am not here to restore your man-made kingdom. I'm here to do something bigger than that. I'm here to do something bigger than that. So in verse 8, he reminds them of the result. 
And I find this is always something really important when I'm doing something. Why are we doing this? What is the point of this? Why do we gather here as a church? What is the kingdom of God all about? Why, why do these, these uh, local expressions gathering all over our country, all over the world today and around the week to do what Jesus has told us to do is establish the kingdom here and now. Why are we doing all this? And he just reminds them again and again. He says he tries to keep that main mission, that main focus as the answer. He says, guys, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses. And so a kingdom witnessed, a kingdom witnessed to the nations who the king was. That's what you're to do. And so they ask the question. They're standing there staring at the sky. What are we supposed to do? Be my kingdom witness. Gather, expand, grow, launch, multiply, plant churches, gather and be witnesses of who the king was. Be a group of people who live under my law, worship me as king in a particular place, and the nations will know who I am. So what does this kingdom witness look like? I want to offer just three things quickly as we conclude. The kingdom witness, number one, a kingdom witness is presence before proclamation. Presence before proclamation. That's your first insert down in the bottom there. The word here for witness in the Greek is the word matarion, which is where we get the word martyr. And martyrdom is the complete giving of one's life for the claims of the gospel. So it could have very easily said, go and be my martyrs. And this term witness is used six more times frequently in the New Testament than any term for preaching or proclamation. See, witness is not something we have to push, defend, or somehow make happen. It is something we live together and in the process, our lives gives credibility to what we say. Now, this isn't to, dim to diminish the need and the role of proclamation in our witness. But it provides the context for it. It gives the, the lifestyle, the, the, the visual imprint of what it is that we believe so that the words begin to make sense for those who wonder. I've heard people say before, often my words in evangelism or witness feel inadequate. And I'd say, if it's depart from the presence and the, li and the lifestyle from it, it is inadequate. If we are to be witnesses, we are to be martyrs. We're supposed to give our whole lives, everything about us, as a living example. Paul calls it a, a living sacrifice in Romans 12 a visual reminder to the world when we are alone and when we're together about who this Jesus is. And so, we kingdom witness, if you feel inadequate, the first step is be present with people and live your life as you submit to God as king and live under his law. Because his law is full of grace and love and mercy and justice and everybody identifies with that. So be those things and then you will have the context. You will have what it says in 1 Peter. You will have the words for the lifestyle. You will have words for the life that you are living. It's presence before proclamation. Number two, kingdom witness identifies and confronts counter kingdoms. Because we're not alone in building our kingdom. There is another who is building kingdoms all around us. Just like in Israel... There were kingdoms of this world all around, nations of this world all around that had different values, different ways of life, different ways of doing things. Dan Richbart actually mentioned this when he was in, um, when they were doing their disaster relief trip, that he, they said it first to him that all the churches are here. Like, they're all helping, and he was really encouraged by that. And then he realized later on that didn't just mean the Christian churches. Churches who teach lies, churches who manipulate, Churches who lead people away from Jesus instead of towards Jesus as the one only need for salvation. There are counter kingdoms in our world. And I'm not talking just about religious ones. There are kingdoms of materialism. There are kingdoms 
of nationalism. There are kingdoms of family life being so much that I'm going to work 60 hours to provide instead of actually being with them. There's kingdoms of moral relativism. There's kingdom of scientific naturalism. There's new age kingdoms. There's salvation by therapy. When we read Jesus, we talked about Jesus being tempted right before his his, uh, public ministry. The third temptation is all about having to decide which kingdom you'll be a part of. Read this in Matthew 4. It says this, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And some of them look mighty nice, don't they? All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. These counter kingdoms are at work in our world and they're often completely unknown to us. And the chief task of the church is to identify the counter kingdoms that are telling different stories about what is real and what is important and what is valuable. And oftentimes, because we are not observant, we miss them. And we might even be bowing to some of them without even knowing it. I love this quote by Sherlock Holmes. Uh, Watson asks him how he does it. How do you see the things? How do you pick out the clues and put them all together and be able to solve the mystery? And Sherlock Holmes looks at him and says, you see but you fail to observe. You see it, but you fail to observe it. When you drive down the 290 and you see the temple of materialism, have any of you driven by the temple of materialism? It's called the Galleria. We read in our New Testament about temples to false gods all the time. We think, I don't know how you could be a Christian back then. We have temples literally built to the kingdoms of this world. But we don't see it. We don't see it. Or we see it, but we don't observe it. And this requires presence. This requires us actually being in the world, not of the world, but in the world to see it, to observe it, to walk with your coworkers, walk with your neighbors, walk with your friends, hear their stories, hear the kingdoms they're bowing down to because we all bow down to someone. We all bow down to someone. And from that, be able to counter and be able to tell a better story about the world. Tell a better, more beautiful, more compelling, more captivating, more life-giving story than the ones that they're bowing down to. But we have to be able to see it. You see, but you do not see, says Jesus. A few years back, I was, we were hosting a Super Bowl party for um, some of our people at our church plant, and we got connected with this family who had a six-year-old daughter named Sarah. So we were talking with them all through the first half, and then about five minutes before the first half ended, their parents went into the kitchen to mingle a little bit, and I was left sitting with Sarah, and the Super Bowl uh, halftime show played. And that year it was um, Beyonce. Beyonce opened her set with the lights and the smoke, and literally 100,000 people in the stands and in the in the on the turf, screaming her name, cheering for her, and she opens with the song, Bootylicious. Now, I'd give you the lyrics, but I think you can put together what the song is about. In that moment, I turned and I looked at Sarah, and I saw her mesmerized by the smoke and the lights and the fanfare, and this woman who was telling her a story about what makes her valuable. Telling her a story about what people will give to her, what, how people will reward her, how people will value her if she submits to this story and this kingdom. Friends, can we tell a better story than that? I need you to tell my five-year-old daughter a better story than that. I need you. And you need me to tell a better story to your daughters than that. We as a church confront the counter kingdoms of this world. We identify them. We see them. We observe them. We're present in the places where life happens. And we begin to listen 
And we begin to observe and we begin to ask the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus says in our passage this morning, don't move until the Holy Spirit comes. You will mess this up. You, you bunker down because we are so dependent on the Holy Spirit to open our minds, to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to see all of these counter kingdoms in our world and to be able to gather together in this place and declare there is a better story out there than that. So Holy Spirit, will you open our eyes to see it? Wait, don't move until the Holy Spirit comes. We are so dependent on that. We must identify and we must counter the kingdoms of this world. And finally, the kingdom witness is political. Political. And this is what I mean by that. What I don't mean by that is that we engage in the little squabbles of the politics of the church. And I don't mean that we're more aggressive and active in our nation's political system. What I mean is that the very simple definition of the word politic, when you put it all together, is a, is a set of agreed upon standards that a body of people engage in as a way of life. It's just a set of standards that we said, this is how we're going to, this is why a king's law is his politic. This is how we are going to function here. That's the simple definition. When Jesus talks about his new kingdom, the church, he uses this word church, he is, which is in the Greek is ecclesia. Ecclesia in that day was always categorized by a political senate or assembly. It would be like Jesus saying, I have come to build my senate. And people would have been like, that's kind of a weird word. Because you could have used a lot. There were plenty of other Greek words that meant like religious assembly or, or a gathering place for a common good. And so people would have been like, Ecclesia? That's kind of strange. Why would, why would you have used that word, Jesus? Because Jesus knows that in order to bear witness to the world, it requires a set of standards, a politic that we have agreed upon that has been given to us by our king, that says the king is faithful and so we will be faithful and we won't leave when things get tough because our king doesn't leave when things get tough. Our king is generous and so we will be generous. Our king forgives and so we will forgive and he gives us this law that is clo so closely connected to us that when we begin to buy into the politics of the kingdom, people will begin to peek in and say, oh, that's what the God God is like. This is why you cannot be on your own in order to bear witness. This is why this mission is never an individual mission because we need each other to love each other and forgive each other. And when someone needs financial assistance, we can do that for you. When someone has a problem, we can come. I love our court care corridors and we're not there yet. We're, we're just scratching the surface. But think about it. We have seven little God kingdoms of people that care for one another, that love one another, that meet together, that pray with one another. We're going to try to get small groups or community groups around each of these to bear witness to their location of who God is. But it only works if we accept the politics of the kingdom. Love, generosity, peace, hope. So this is a political call as well. We need to engage politically. And again, not in our nation's politics, not necessarily in, in anything, in how we treat one another. So like I said, Jesus is love, and so we are love. Jesus is forgives, and so we forgive. Jesus is gracious, and so we are gracious. Jesus is self-sacrificing, and so we are self-sacrificing. Jesus is peace, and so we live lives of peace. The church embodies a better kingdom, a better king, a better social order, a better law, a better peace, a better justice, a better economy, and a better way of life to the watching world. So now, friends, what are we supposed to do? Now what are we supposed to do? The band wants to come up as we close. You see, the disciples still didn't get it. They were ready for the end of the story, and they didn't realize that they were joining the story. Their kingdom witness would advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. They needed a divine intervention, though, to ask, why do you stand here looking at the sky? Have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't take us up with him? 
I mean, didn't he accomplish everything? I mean, he died. He was resurrected. He dealt with death. He dealt with sin. He dealt with resurrection. What is the one thing that we can do here that we can't do in heaven? Is to bear witness. We'll bear witness to one another, but bear witness to those who are far from God. That's the only reason you're still here. There is nothing you're doing now that you won't be doing then than this. That's why you're still seated. And the disciples needed someone to remind them. They needed two angels to remind them, what are you doing looking in the sky? Friends, are you looking in the sky? Are you looking in the sky? Where do you and where do I need to be asked the same questions? Why do you stand here looking into the sky instead of being intentionally present with your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers? Why do you stand here looking into the sky instead of doing the work of identifying the counter kingdoms in our world and being honest about which ones you bow down to? I'm going to say this as graciously as I can, but if your reaction to the church shootings in Texas two weeks ago was to fight, stock up, and barricade, perhaps you need to ask if the counter kingdom of safety and security has too tight a grip. Because Jesus does not promise these. In fact, he promises the exact opposite. Where do we need to get our eyes out of the sky and say, God, what kingdoms am I bowing to? What kingdoms unbeknownst to I have I given my loyalty to? And I need to reexamine my life. And I need to examine my mission. I need to examine why I'm here. And if that means pain, and if that means insecurity, and if that means the lack of safety, then I'll do that. So that the watching world knows that we are a place of love, we are a place of hope, we are a place of peace and forgiveness. Radical, radical forgiveness. Why are you standing here looking at the sky instead of engaging in the politics of the kingdom? Not in gossip or power, but in living righteously and forgiving others and contributing to the kingdom economy and self-sacrifice. If you have just been sitting in the pews living out your life, what are you doing? If you're sitting here in, in the pews this morning and not engaging in our politics, not engaging in our way of life together, what are you doing here? Go get some sleep. There's no reason for you to be here because there's no other reason for any of us to be here than this. It's time to engage. If the Holy Spirit is nudging you, if there's something in the forefront of your mind, I'd encourage you, take that sermon slip, flip it over and write it down. God, what kingdoms... What kingdoms have I might be bowing down to? Where do I need to do a little heart work there? Maybe you need to carve out some time to meet your neighbors or your coworkers over for, to have your coworkers over for dinner. Maybe you've lived in the little kingdom of your individualism and safety and security in your home and it's time to let the drawbridge down. Like I said, maybe it's time for you to do some heart work to see where you're failing to observe and where you need to be more present. Maybe it's time to start giving to this kingdom economy. I love that over a quarter of our budget, it's actually one of the major reasons I even came to this church is because I said, show me your budget and that will tell me what you value. And I said, here's a church that gets it. That over a quarter of our, of our entire operating budget goes out to be a kingdom witness to say, we are about advancing the gospel. We're about being a part of God's economy 
that isn't save and scrap and preserve and hold on to, but radical generosity. Where might you need to begin participating in this economy? Where have you bowed down to the, the, the counter kingdoms of security and financial security and you are holding on and it's time to start giving? Maybe you need to get out of the pew and commit, invest, or participate in the life of this local expression of the kingdom. It's time for you. That butt ring on the pew seat is wearing pretty thin. And it's time to get up and step up and invest and engage. Find your place here. We need you. Because we need to tell a story. And we rest in the fact this, and it's the last line of our passage, that the same Jesus who had been taken away, he'll come back. He'll come back. He will make all things right. He will put every enemy, every counter kingdom under his feet. But what will his kingdom look like when he returns? Now, what are you supposed to do now? Let's pray. God. We see, but we don't see. We see, but we don't observe. We get caught looking in the sky. And we need to be reminded that your story continues on here. And yes, Lord, we are so thankful. Jesus, you are coming back. You will restore everything. You will put every enemy and every counter kingdom under your feet. But Lord, we want to be part of your story. That's why we're still here. So Lord, wherever we need to identify any counter kingdoms, wherever we need to be more present, wherever we need to get more bought in into the politics of this place, reveal it to us. Help us to see and to see. Whatever is written on our card, may we say yes to you. May we know what are we supposed to do now?